Hello, welcome to another episode of the Green Minds Podcast, the podcast dedicated towards bringing you thought-provoking conversations on climate change and sustainability. My name is Jim, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, we dive deeper into a key instrument of the UK's renewable energy development, the Contract for Difference Mechanism, and the Allocation Rounds. Today's speaker is Arietta. She's a consultant at the consulting service provider at GuideHouse, and her work focuses on sustainability and renewable energy consulting. Welcome, Arietta. Thank you for coming to this episode. Hi, Jim, and thank you for having me. Let's start off with a brief self-introduction. Arietta, can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, sure. So, well, I'm Italian, as you might guess from my accent. I'm working at GuideHouse as a consultant in sustainability, energy and infrastructure. My background is uh, chemical engineering. I did my undergrad and master's in Italy at University of Padova. I studied chemical and industrial processes engineering. And during my master's, I went to London for the first time to do my research for my master thesis at UCL. But it's been a little bit of an adventure because um, COVID happened and then I need to flew back home and kind of finish all my research back in Italy once again. But I really, really wanted to go back to London and study something different and more related to business and uh, economics. And so I applied and I got accepted at Imperial Business School. And there is where I studied management and finance. And yeah, now I'm still in London, happily working in sustainability, which is kind of my passion. It's good to hear. I'm happy you found the job that you're interested in. And it's in sustainability. That's what basically all CCMFers are pretty much looking towards to. So let's start with our first question. Can you maybe explain to me what Contract for Difference is? I'm seeking maybe an introduction to the Contract for Difference system and maybe tell us about the mechanism as well. Yeah, sure. So the Contract for Difference scheme, which is also known as CFD scheme more briefly, is a mechanism introduced by the UK government to promote the development of renewables and also to support the achievement of the country's net zero target. So under this scheme, a developer basically signs a contract with the low carbon contracts company, which is um, a company owned by the government. And this works in, in the following way. So they agree on a strike price for the electricity produced by the assets over 15 years. Then the developer sells the electricity on the spot market. But because the developers and the LCCC have signed this contract for difference, as the name suggests, if the strike price is higher than the reference wholesale market price, at which the developer, of course, sells their electricity, then the low carbon contract company pays the developer the difference. This offers protection from any financial losses that the developer might face otherwise. On the contrary, if the strike price is lower than the reference market price, then the, the developer pays LCCC the difference. So for, to give you like an example, um, if they agreed on a strike price of £50 per megawatt hour and the developer sells on the spot market the electricity at 60 
pounds per megawatt hour, then the developer will have to pay back LCCC 10 pounds per megawatt hour sold and vice versa, of course. So this to say that having a stable cash flow is extremely important for developers because it's basically how they are able to secure financing for their investment at a um, competitive price. So as one can imagine, uh, developing a solar farm or a wind farm requires a huge upfront capital expenditure. And the lowest interest rate that a developer needs to pay for financing it, the better. So if the developer can provide proof that their future cash flow is stable over a long time, in this case, 15 years, and in this case, thanks to the CFD scheme, then the risk associated to that project is limited. And the interest rate that the financing entity, for example, a bank would ask, is going to be lower. But how is that agreed strike price defined? So for each of the technologies involved in the CFD scheme, the government sets a maximum electricity rate in pounds per megawatt hour that the government is willing to offer during a given delivery year. This maximum financial support is called administrative strike price, ASP, and is basically like a cap on clearing prices in an auction because developers cannot receive a strike price value which is higher than their technology administrative strike price. And for the most curious listeners that might have already had a look at the pricing system, I don't know, maybe Jim, you already had a look at it. The pricing is set in 2012 money. And this allows, I would say, a direct comparison between years in real terms, removing the impact of inflation. So prices can, of course, be adjusted to today's prices by just using a consumer price index, a CPI uh, inflator. So to provide like a, I say, very, very brief summary, the developers, um, they are paid the strike price and then the administra administrative strike price pretty much acts as a ceiling for how high that strike price can be set. And I guess the interesting part of the um, safety system is that to make, make it so that it's comparable between the years, they use a 2012 base year for the money value of that strike price. Am I correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That's perfect. And maybe some sort of follow up, uh, follow up question on this one is, you know, there are other systems out there that one might use and what comes to mind is the feed in tariff system. Uh, can you maybe give us like a very brief comparison between the CFD system and the feed in tariff, the FIT system? Yeah, sure. So I would say the common aspect uh, between CFD and feed in tariffs is that both mechanisms aim at promoting the renewable electricity generation. However, the feeding tariffs are seen as more necessary to promote renewable energy technologies in the early stages of their development when production is often not really economically feasible. Um, this usually means offering, I don't know, small scale producers an electricity price which is slightly higher than the wholesale market price to kind of encourage their development. Anyone who produces renewable energy could potentially be eligible for a feed-in tariffs, but 
those who actually take advantage of it, often non-commercial energy producers, I don't know, you might have solar panels on your roof and just sell back to the grid electricity that you're not using but still producing. So, for instance, I would say homeowners, business owners or farmers. Um, so, yeah, I would say that's the main difference. Speaking of renewables, can we also talk about how CFDs can be useful for the energy transition? You know, maybe talk about how it benefits the developers? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. And I think we can just look a little bit at the numbers here. So the first year of the CFD scheme was uh, 2014. And since then, the scheme has promoted more than 29 gigawatts of renewable energy investment, which is pretty considerable and incentivizing the development of different renewable technologies, such as, you know, onshore, offshore wind and solar, just to name the most popular uh, ones. So I would say, yes, um, it's really useful for the energy transition and also for developers to secure new projects uh, and new investments for, for the business at a competitive interest rate. Okay, sounds good. The CFD is a very key financial, I guess, incentive for encouraging developers to actually uh, put in their effort for developing yeah. renewables and, you know, by encouraging renewable energy the energy transition is realized. Okay, so now that we understand what CFD is and how they may be useful for the energy transition, I think it's important for us to also understand like one of the key mechanisms for enabling uh, renewable projects to actually happen, and they are the allocation rounds. Arietta, can we talk about allocation rounds? Of course, I'll try to be as clear as possible here. So. Allocation rounds are options and developers can bid if that technology um, is included in the scheme. So, as I mentioned before, for each technology, the government sets an administrative strike price and each developer can bid, offering an electricity rate deemed reasonable to cover the generation costs, first of all, and ensure some level of profitability, second. Because the administrative strike price represents a cap in price the government is willing to pay, if a developer considers this administrative strike price to be too low to make any profit, then they would probably not take part in the auction. Also, because the total budget for each allocation round is set, there is a certain degree of competition between developers of the same technology. Therefore, uh, the lower the price offer by the developer for a given technology, the more likely it is that the assets of that developer will secure the scheme's funding. I guess the administrative strike price plays such an important part in determining the price ceiling. In times when the price ceiling is set too low, something, some problems could happen. And I think that's what happened last year when we see headlines about, you know, the allocation round five having troubles where there's no bids for offshore wind. Can you maybe tell us more about what happened? Yeah, that, that's actually it. So last September, the UK government announced that the allocation round five failed to procure any offshore wind because of this administrative strike price being set too low. So because the administrative strike price was set too low, 
many developers decided not to submit their bids as the maximum price offered through the CFD scheme would have not ensured any profits for the offshore wind developers. This had remarkable implication on the UK renewable energy development because overall the CFD scheme managed to secure only 3.7 gigawatts of renewable capacity. And if we compare that with the previous year, um, it was 65% uh, less capacity secured. Moreover, um, the results of the fifth allocation round slowed down the achievement of the country's government targets, which is the one to reach 50 gigawatt of offshore capacity by 2030. So, yeah, it's been a little bit unexpected somehow, um, a little bit of an issue, but we've seen that the government has already taken some action uh, to kind of make up for that. So I guess there's a little bit of headwind in the smooth sailing of offshore wind. And one must wonder, you know, what, what caused this kind of, I guess, low price ceiling? And some of the people I've talked to, they've pointed towards the f lack of communication uh, between the developers and the government, uh, specifically in regards towards the rising cost problems and the various supply chain bottlenecks. But I'm interested in learning about, Areta, what's your take on this? What do you think that really caused, you know, this kind of low price ceiling for the auction? Yeah, so I can't really tell with certainty whether there has been lack of communication between offshore wind developers and policymakers. And surely the intent of policymakers was to promote offshore wind deployment, given its crucial key role in the renewable energy transition of, of the country. Also, we would need to consider that the administrative strike price offered for other technologies, such as solar or onshore wind, was deemed high enough to attract offers from several developers. What the facts tell us is rather that there has been some sort of misjudgment, maybe, of what the costs of offshore wind developers are. So the, the growing price for materials, for instance, the supply chain bottlenecks, which is super under pressure, the growing interest rates are really putting considerable pressure on developers of offshore wind farms and possibly the entity, say, of this, these problems, these factors have not been factored in completely. Yeah. So the reason why there is a low price ceiling, we can't really say for certain, but we can reasonably assume that the government probably didn't have as much of a detailed understanding of the cost issues that the developers are you know, in reality facing. And I think in response to the no-bid situation, the government has made their, um, I guess, improvements, I'd say. But uh, so what happened was they've raised the rate price for offshore wind from whatever it was to now 73 pounds per megawatt hour for allocation round six. In your opinion, do you think this is enough? And has the government raised the price enough? That it's a very good question. Um, as I was as I was briefly mentioning before, there are two main factors that influence the price of offshore wind technology. 
So the first one is supply chain and material costs. And the second one is financing costs. If we think about supply chain, for instance, so supply chain disruptions started during the pandemic and then have been kind of exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. And on top of that, we have growing demand of offshore wind turbines that is putting a lot of pressures on producers. So I was recently looking at some articles and investors and Siemens Gamesa, which are one of the main producers of wind offshore wind turbines, just declared that keeping up with orders is getting more and more uh, challenging. So short answer, is this sufficient? I hope so. Maybe a little bit more of a diplomatic answer. I'm sure that policymakers have done their best to kind of factor in a little bit better the costs and uncertainties and anything that might influence prices and because there's really a lot of interest in promoting offshore winds. The sector definitely faces a lot of cost issues, I'd say. Um, you mentioned Siemens Gamesa briefly. I used to work at Siemens Gamesa and one of the like recently they've had a crazy cost issue where um, because there's a design defect for some of their onshore wind turbines, that really cost them a fortune. And so I feel like if the government really wants to make it so that the price is attractive, there are a lot of things that they need to take into consideration. And, you know, the design defect for Siemens Gamesa will definitely have an impact on the price or the cost that developers are looking at. But at the same time, considering these are black swan events, you know, it really is a difficult task for the policymakers to gauge you know, what kind of cost or what kind of price is appropriate. And finally, we want to focus on, you know, how the CFD, the strike price reached and CFD will have an impact on the price negotiations that's going on for the CPP signings. Because, you know, the, uh, so the CPPAs are the corporate power purchase agreements. And because, we you know, um, that to reach a truly net zero society, the renewable industry can't rely on the governments to offtake them forever. Eventually, they'll have to find corporations that are willing to buy these renewable energy for them, from them, and you know to really have zero emissions at least for their scope twos. And so, I'd love to know your opinion on you know how does the CFD strike price reached interact with the prices that are being negotiated in CPPAs? And, you know, does a higher CFD strike price facilitate the CPPA signings or is it the other way around? Okay, so this is a bit of a tricky one to answer. So I will start with explaining what happened with allocation round five. When allocation round five failed to secure any offshore projects, the spare budget was split between other technologies in the same pot, mostly onshore wind and solar. Onshore wind projects in particular benefited from this, as 24 projects secure financing for a total of about 1.5 gigawatts of capacity. And to give some context, this represented an increase of 14 projects and 0.6 gigawatt more from allocation round four, so from the previous allocation rounds. 
what I try to highlight here and in, in my article as well is that the corporate power process agreement market may have been negatively affected by these uh, results. And to explain it a little bit better, more pro basically, more projects securing financing through the CFD scheme would imply fewer projects available in the market for corporate buyers. So a reduced supply of projects in the market, plus an increasing interest for power purchase agreements for corporates, as you highlighted earlier, may keep putting kind of an upward pressure on corporate PPAs prices. Then there was your question, do higher CFD prices incentivize uh, CPPA signings? Well, I would say if administrative strike prices were set too high, they would have attracted more offers from developers and the allocation round could have probably secured more projects with kind of similar effects on the corporate PPA market. So what uh, I would conclude is that administrative strike prices in the CFD scheme are not set to compete with PPAs um, and the kind of ultimate shared goal is to promote the renewables development uh, and deployment and utilize green electricity. So the updates that the UK government has made uh, on allocation round six will probably ensure the promotion of offshore winds and kind of a more balanced financing strategy. So, yeah, I wouldn't say that neither higher prices incentivize corporate PPAs nor the other way around. It's more like a matter of making sure that the two processes don't compete too much and kind of just promote together the deployment or renewables. Okay, that's such a great answer. So it sounds to me that, you know, what the strike price does is that it, it has an effect on the projects that are being supplied. And then, you know, depending on how much projects that are being supplied, it, it could have an effect on, you know, how much renewable energy that corporations are able to purchase, and that will have an effect on the pricings. Is that correct? Yeah. Thank you. And then finally, 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 in your article, mm -hmm. you also mentioned a funding pot for the UK's offshore wind pipeline. Yes. What is this funding pot? What's the purpose and, you know, will it address some of the grid connection issues that we are seeing or really it's just going to subsidize a higher strike price? Okay, so renewable technologies in the CFD scheme are grouped into pots, which are fundamentally groups of technologies gathered together on the basis of industry maturity. So, for example, in allocation round five, um, there were two pots. Pot one had technologies such as solar, onshore winds, offshore winds, and others. In pot two, we had tidal stream, floating offshore wind, anaerobic digestion, and other less mature technologies. I would say in addition to that, uh, each pot has a set budget. So what we've seen in allocation round five happened because offshore wind was in the same pot of other technologies. And because of the lack of offshore wind offers, the spare budget, which was of the budget available for pot one was split between or among other technologies of the same pot. In allocation round six, so 
this year, 2024, there will be a third pot for offshore wind only. So we'll have pot one, pot two, and then pot three, where we'll, there will only be offshore wind, which means that the budget for pot three will be available for offshore wind projects only, hopefully ensuring better outcomes. Now that we've got the technical stuff out of the way, let's move on to something that's you know more on top of all business school students' minds, which is career development. So many, people from the CCMF cohort aspire to become sustainability consultants, and you are one. Could you share insights on your journey from an Imperial Business School student to a consultant at Guidehouse? Of course, with pleasure. So my journey has been pretty linear, I would say. I studied management and finance at, at the business school, but I've always been really interested in energy and sustainability. And I knew that would have been my future because that was what I wanted to focus on. I tried to get some exposure to the topic during my studies, both through electives and also by joining the Imperial Energy Society. And I think it was a great experience. I really recommend it. I've been working on a project sponsored by Shell and we developed a techno-economical model for the production of green hydrogen from offshore wind electricity. And I'm sharing this just to say that it's really important to try and get exposure to what you're passionate about. And I'm sure that the CCMF Masters has a lot to offer in this sense. Um, so, yeah, try to get as much exposure as possible. Try to tailor your CV. And going back to my journey as part of my Masters, I did my internship at Guidehouse and I happily managed to get a full-time job out of it. So now I'm working as a sustainability consultant, as you say, and yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Great, thank you. Um, having learned, you know, how to become a sustainability consultant, that being, you know, putting yourself out there, getting more exposure and trying your best at things. I think we'd also be interested in learning how, uh, how it actually works, you know, being a sustainability consultant. So. Can you maybe tell us about it? What advice do you have for those that are pursuing a similar career? And, you know, just a glimpse into what to expect. Yeah. So I would say my advice is to be curious, eager to learn, and really open to anything you knew. Being a consultant in sustainability sector is, uh, I think, very exciting the range of projects you can end up working on is so wide, I could have never imagined. But you always have the opportunity to learn something new. Um, I can only talk through my experience, of course, but I would say uh, projects vary according to where the clients are in their sustainability and zero journey. Um, so you could help them set their targets or quantify their carbon footprint or develop a strategy to obey their emissions, scope one, two, and three, all together, or just maybe a focus on scope one and two, quantify their climate risk, or also procure power purchase agreements, as I'm doing at the moment. So it's really, and so on and so forth, of course. So it's really, really varied. Of course, it depends also on the company, uh, what they focus on, but at Guidehouse, we do and offer so many services to our clients that it's always really engaging and exciting. 
Perfect, perfect. <laughs> and I guess now that the first semester is over, and with the winter party coming on, there's the life aspect of being an imperial student. So, as an imperial alumni, what tips and tricks would you share with you know the people that have just started their journey at Imperial? Maybe tips on how to survive Imperial. You know, this could be, you know, what your favorite spots are, sort of like the hidden locations, and you know, anything you found helpful during your time at Imperial. Okay, <laughs> so yes, I know it's easier said than done, and pressure on students. Might be high sometimes, and this leaves very little time to rest. But I would like to share maybe a couple of things here.、Uh, time really flies, and one year masters is just like so quick, and you won't even realize that it's gone.、Uh, so the first thing that I would like to share is enjoy your time at Imperial, enjoy your time in London, and make friends. The people you will make connections with this year will influence your future, your life, and possibly your career as well. So really nurture those、uh, relationships and don't think too much about studying.、Um, yeah, I know it's as I said, it's easier said than done, but、um, this is my 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 first suggestion. I would say the second one is be brave and try new things. Imperial and the business school have so much to offer. So join clubs or societies, take initiatives, speak to people from different cohorts, try to understand what they're doing, what their aspirations are, what the possible jobs they might have in the future. Maybe they might be an inspiration for you as well. You might have never thought about that. And also attend events, attend the winter party, have fun, enjoy the music, enjoy free drinks, just. Enjoy this last year of your life as a student at Imperial, such a great university in an amazing city as well.、Uh, this won't come back, so I I am already missing it. And favorite spots? So at the library, I used to study. Just when you enter it, a few steps、um, you have on the right. The I think it's called computer room. I don't know, but I've yeah, always yeah. There's、yes. a lot of computers in there. <laughs> I would sit in front of the windows, looking at the campus lawn and the amazing tree.、Uh, I really like that, and the tower, of course, the Queen's Tower,、mm-hmm. if I'm not wrong. And another amazing place is the sauna at the sports center in next to the swimming pool. A few people might know about it. Maybe the majority doesn't, but it's a great way to unwind and relax after an intense day at Imperial. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> a secret spot in the library overlooking the Queen's Tower and then a sauna to relax. But、yes. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I I don't know if you know this, but the Queen's Tower is under construction. So、oh, really? for people who've got into Imperial this year, we have not seen the Queen's Tower. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, but you know we still have the saunas to enjoy. Yeah,、so、you can still have that. <laughs> yeah, and finally, it is our tradition to ask our speakers a fun question at the end of the podcast, and、mm. I hope you don't mind.、Uh, the question I have for you is this: What keeps you up at night? At night. Yes. Um. 
well, I've always wanted to. This is not fun, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to make it. Well, fun. maybe, maybe my answer is not going to be fun, but um, I don't know why. But I've always uh, wanted to really make an impact, and um, so I'm constantly thinking how I can improve myself and how I can. Um, reach out to as many people as possible to share my passion and to maybe in the future I'd love to you know be inspirational for someone else um I've always liked the idea of uh I don't know growing up with people in terms of like professional career um I love uh, sharing my experience just to be useful for other people's development um so yeah, I don't know. Um, this is not a fun answer. Uh, <laughs> maybe I should redo that. No, it's perfect. You are an inspiration to all the <laughs> listeners of this podcast, and you are sharing that information. So you are becoming who you want to be. So I'd say it's good. It's really good for you. Maybe you don't have to keep yourself at night. Just you know, go to sleep knowing that you've done what you're trying to do. Yeah, just my earplugs on and um, I sleep like a baby. <laughs> okay, and now I think this wraps up our episode. It was a pleasure exchanging with you and learning about CFD and the valuable career advices from you. Thank you, Arietta. Been a pleasure to meet you and, and speak with you, Jim, really. And thank you for having me. I hope uh, at least one person uh, will we find this interesting they certainly will they certainly will and for everyone listening i hope you enjoyed this episode and that you are as excited as we are for the new year remember if you have any ideas or suggestions for episodes or know the perfect guest for us to talk to you can get in touch with us at podcast.greenminds at gmail.com that's podcast.greenminds at gmail.com and don't forget to subscribe to the IB podcast channel so you don't miss out on our next episodes. Thank you so much for tuning in and speak to you soon.